1, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading out the New King James Version as is my custom. God's Word says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Well, this morning I want to launch a series for, for the celebration of our Lord's birth. And I'm going to share with you what I shouldn't do, what they told me in my hermeneutics class and in my pastoral Preaching classes never do, and that's tell them what your goal is up front. You're supposed to wait and introduce that later on, otherwise people will think, well, I know he wants to say, so now I'm just going to tune him out because I already have the gist of it. My purpose over this month is to make Christmas substantial for you. Not by making it full of earthly presence and activities, but rather to give it real substance. In the past, I've pretty much just taken time aside for maybe one message um, on the Sunday before uh, Christmas Day. Um, but with me finishing up Luke, I want to launch this series right out of the end of Luke. And I want to take this month to really delve into the person and work of Jesus Christ as an overview, really, of the Gospel of Luke and our study, but really even much more than that overview of all of Scripture. That we might be able to understand the significance of this event, not just because stores are open later hours, not because there's pretty lights as you drive around the streets, um, not because you have decorations in your house and Christmas cards from people you haven't heard from for a year, but because of the significance of who it is that is being celebrated. Now, I do want to do a little aside here. We put up a Christmas tree in the entryway. How many of you noticed it? Amazing. Any of you offended? Come on. It's okay. We have a manger scene up here. Um, and for many people, they'd say, well, that doesn't mix. In the course of my ministry, I had been confronted with people who, who were offended early on. I remember as a young person, uh, my teens, remembering that the big problem was that they took Christ out of Christmas and we called it Xmas. And of course, what was never told anyone was that that was started by theologians, not by retailers, and not by your government. That was started by theologians as shorthand 
That was not Xmas, that's Xymas. And the Greek letter Xi is what we use for Christ. But there was a great furor all over the church. They took Christ out of Christmas, and now it's Xmas. Well, I want to share with the origins of that and say, yes, they did. Because most people didn't know that. That that was just abbreviations that theologians would use. We wouldn't use the moss afterwards, but we would use that abbreviation for Christ frequently. In our notations and things like that, that Hebrew exile. But the fact is society had largely been extracting the idea of the birth of Christ, of Jesus, out of the events and the celebrations of it. Well then, in my last ministry, I was confronted with another offense. And that is the word Christmas at all. That somehow... Um, Using that term refers to the Christ's mass. And that is accurate representation of what it is. It's talking about a mass. Um, and of course, for those of us that do not celebrate mass, who do not re-crucify uh, our Lord again and again, we do not participate in that, there was a big movement um, to stop using that term. And that we should only talk about Christ's Advent. That's Advent Sunday. And also during that time was a big movement. And it really is surviving to this day um, to focus in on all the paganism that is inherent in our celebration of our Lord's birth. And they would go through and talk about uh, the uh, different pagan elements in the trees and lights and greenery and and uh, things along that line, and that these were all, and, and Santa Claus, of course, uh, and, and we were inundated with that kind of information for a number of years. And there was, I'm not saying there wasn't any truth in that, I'm saying it was emphasized, and it's kind of interesting now because we have come to a different place, and I wore my tie on purpose this morning. It says on it, Happy Holidays. And it's got my lemon M guys with Santa Claus hats. Just thought I might offend a few of you that way too this morning. Because I really want you to be offended all this instead of at God's word. Because when we get to that, I don't want any offense there. If you're offended there, you're in deep trouble because there you have to deal with God. And now the big thing is I'm going to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays to show you that I'm a Christian and I don't want to take Christ out of it. And we neglect the fact that the word holiday is built out of holy days. So what we're really saying is that this is a day set apart, which is what holy means, a set apart. And what you set it apart to um, is up to you. If you set it apart to God, then it's appropriate to say, happy holidays. I have set my days apart to God. I've made them holy in my sight. And that's what it means. But what we have is these trends and whether, how they manifest themselves. And now the preferred thing to say is Christmas, which is a few years, about 15 years, 20 years ago was, oh, you shouldn't say that term, um, has this movement of the Christian community trying to re-root itself into our society. And every effort along that line is going to be met with failure. And I want to share with you why. And that's because our society is not rooted in Christ at all. And we can sit here and badmouth one another, and we can sit here and, and be disgusted or offended or uh, look down on other believers for their celebration of our Lord's birth, either the timing of it, the manner of it, the naming of it. We can take your pick, and yes, you could probably come up with some decent arguments all the way along the line. But I want to take some time this morning, a little bit of soapbox time here, to share with you that you have the means and the opportunity to worship God 
by celebrating his son's birth. And that you can fill things with meaning regardless of their origins and what others might say, you can fill them with a different meaning. With a meaning that is biblical, that is full of truth. I sit down with my family when they were younger regularly and explained why we put up a Christmas tree and the imagery that was there that we pointed out. We put up a tree to remind us of the tree our Savior was crucified on. We put up lights because the Bible describes them as the light of the world. We put up ornaments representing those things that are precious to us to remind ourselves that we've given them all to our Lord. And we fill it with meaning. We talk about gift giving as representing the precious gift of our Savior. We talk about why do we put up greenery? So representing life and the life that we receive from Savior our Lord. And so we can take these images and we can sit there and rehearse their pagan origins and say, oh, we are horrifically uh, in error for participating in any of that. Or we can take these things out of God's Word and we can transform our images around them and fill them with their meaning. I find Christ very frequently doing that in the Gospels. Taking terms and, and ideas that meant very different things to the, his audience, and yet he filled them with a whole new meaning. He took a term like born again that confounded one of the high teachers of Israel. What do you mean? I've got to crawl back into my mother and get born over again? And he says, oh no. I want to fill it with greater meaning. I want to give it new meaning and freshness. And we have a term that we use today um, that itself has been twisted a little bit by the world. But do we abandon it? No. Do we look at its, at its background? We come to Christ and we say, that's going to be where I find my meaning. And so we are going to take time this month each Sunday, to do as Christ did, and that is to rehearse from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms that all these things must be fulfilled regarding Christ. And I want to challenge you that not only is it capable of being done, but it ought to be done within your home, that we communicate these truths within the symbols and activities that we participate this time of year. And not to get caught up in this sort of arrogant, I'm not going to participate in that because I know where it comes from. By that same measure, There's very little that you can celebrate. So today we want to give significance to what we are doing by looking into God's Word. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that you might work in our hearts and our minds and we might understand your Word and that as you done with your disciples of old, you might give us a comprehension of your scriptures that we might then be obedient to them and that we might worship you in that act of obedience. Lord, we thank you. And truly we do thank you for an opportunity in our culture and indeed in around the world, <laughs> even in Hindu India, opportunity to have Hindus come to celebrate your birth. We thank you for time set aside on our earth still to this day to celebrate your coming. And Lord, we recognize our responsibility before you and that is to fill that time with truth, with meaning, with significance, not the truth of what we believe, but rather the truth of what your word declares. 
So as we look in your word now, we pray your spirit's help that we might not impose upon it our beliefs, but rather extract from it your truth. We need your help in this, for our intellect isn't sharp enough to do it. So we ask your Holy Spirit's movement in our midst to guard this time from error, from opinion, from worldliness, and that it might be your truth from your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, why do we do it? Why do we celebrate Christ's birth? And I want to share with you there are several things that move us, that move me to immediately identify this as something that must and should be celebrated by the people of God, if not the entire world. There's only several events in Scripture that are comparable to it, um, and I want to sh- share just a little bit of what they are and why they also uh, are equal in force to this. As you look through the narrative of our Lord's birth, we find it full of celebration. Not just by a handful of people in one part of the world, but indeed by agents of heaven and people from around the world on earth during this time. And it was not just a day, but an entire period of time, extended period of time of celebration where uh, this was the most significant event to be happening on the planet in the history of man, the coming of Christ. And his coming is very carefully attached to, of course, his purpose in coming, which we're going to do a lot of over the next few weeks, talk about his coming for a purpose, and that purpose being the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of our Lord. And so we are going to certainly attach that, but if we look at that as a single event, from Christ's birth to his ascension, his time on earth, As a single event, it is the greatest event in the history of all things. It is why you are here today and not yesterday. Because something greater than creation happened, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ. We find that in the celebration of Christ, we have His coming celebrated by angelic beings. We have the heavenly hosts engaged in it. And I find only on rare occasions in Scripture, and they are occasions that demand our attention on a regular basis, where the heavenly hosts are engaged in this public celebration. Of course, the angels are there in the Christ's resurrection event. We find them also engaged in Christ's second coming. And so when we narrow it down to the events that are in, that the angels of heaven are engaged in to come in public ministry on earth, they are rare and they are significant. And so, yes, it is not only uh, okay for us to celebrate our Lord's coming, it is, I believe, imperative that we do so. But to do so is to fail to recognize the significance of the humiliation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at its initiation. It was further prophesied extensively. And we're going to be studying some of those. Not only his death, burial, and resurrection, certainly that was prophesied, but there are many, many Old Testament prophecies about his coming, his birth, particularly, where it would happen, under what conditions it would happen, to whom it would happen. All of this was prophesied to fill up this time as something of great significance. It needs to be marked in human history. And we mark it. Not only in the church, as I said, but in the world. The world marks this day. On Thanksgiving Day, I got a call from Haiti. He was oblivious to the fact that it was Thanksgiving Day. You know why? Because that is a peculiarly American holiday. To them, in Haiti and in India and other places where I get calls and, and from Peru, um, and, and Alethea Lossing put something on there. I want to say all the American missionaries out here are getting together to have a Thanksgiving dinner because there's no Thanksgiving in Peru. Okay, it doesn't exist. We're one of the few nations that has it, um, that has a day set aside to thank God. But Christmas is different. Fourth of July isn't celebrated in all places. This is an American holiday. Labor Day, Memorial Day. These are 
holidays set aside by the state. But this holiday is celebrated globally. And we can sit there and say, oh, it shouldn't be done on that day. We should, obviously, Christ was not born in the wintertime. Um, and we can prove evidence of that. And, and, and we can give all of this uh, tangential arguments, and we're missing the point. And so this season, we want to make sure we get the point. And the point of this celebration is that God draws our attention to it, drew men's attention to it for over 2,000, 4,000 years, and has drawn people's attention to it for the last 2,000 years as a historical fact. And so it is not only okay, but proper and indeed justified that we study him. The end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ, on two occasions, described his work of coming to earth, living on earth, performing his miracles and teaching, of dying on the cross, being resurrected from the dead, and ascending into heaven as the fulfillment of all that is written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And we are going to study those together. That Christ, as he opened up the scriptures, beginning with the writings of Moses and going right through the Bible, um, cut these men to the heart. That they were convicted by realizing that, why didn't we get that? How can we go through all this time with Christ for three years, walking daily with him, hearing his teaching, watching his miracles, and how is it that we didn't connect the dots? And my greatest fear for us is that we might go through this season and not connect the dots. Not just from one passage of Scripture or two of the Gospels, but rather from all of it. That it was necessary and that it is, one of the, it is the wondrous act in the history of all. And so we are going to begin with the Law of Moses and we're going to begin where John, the passage we read earlier, directs our attention in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Isn't that fascinating? Back in the end of chapter, the last chapter of Luke, at the end of the book of Luke, we have this wonderful statement saying that Jesus Christ opened their understanding, verse 45 of chapter 24 of Luke. It says that he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. We come to the Gospel of John. It starts off with this statement that the world did not comprehend who Jesus was when he came. They didn't recognize him. They didn't grasp who it was and who they were dealing with, who it was that they were opposing, who it was that they were seeking to stone to death, who it was that they put on that cross, who it was that they buried. They didn't get it. They didn't recognize that this was God incarnate they were dealing with. And so it is imperative that we start, I think, where John has rightly started in the beginning. That we are dealing with the creator of all that exists in this person, Jesus Christ. And that he comes to us as life, the author of life, the original life that is all about us, and then the provider of of new life. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, which was written by a guy named Moses. Thank you. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, certainly. But he was the human author used. And, and by the way, I think it's interesting that in John chapter 1, I know you're turning to Genesis, but I just remembered I wanted to reference Moses here. Then John chapter 1, we have that very statement 
In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're not referring to the law, but to something else. Christ opened the Scriptures, beginning, I believe, in Genesis, to declare to these His disciples, and so we do today, to declare for these disciples here, these followers of Jesus here, that from the very beginning, this was God's plan. That this was not something that was done at the spur of the moment. It was not something that uh, God had uh, was, was a little bit behind the eight ball on and had to catch up with. Um, that he did it through trial and error and came to that, to that conclusion that it was necessary. That law was not a trial and error. It had a purpose. There was a plan from the beginning of how he would deal with the sin of men in his foreknowledge. Of course, we have the account of creation itself. We come to Genesis chapter 3. We have the fall of man recorded for us. And we are immediately confronted with a dilemma. Man, who had God created good, perfect, placed in a perfect environment. All his needs met. He is in Eden. He doesn't have to worry about heating his house. He doesn't have a house. He's not wearing clothes. In his innocence, he is there. And those that want to say that, well, if we could just change the environment a little bit, that we can have men's goodness come out if we just put them in environments that encourages it, are an error. Innocent men in a perfect environment sinned. God knew they would do so. Called the foreknowledge of God. And out of that foreknowledge, He also foreplanned a means to deliver those very same men who in their act of sin were really acting against Him. God says, I know that once they get into that condition, into that state, that they are helpless. And so even as the sin occurs and God confronts those involved in it, which is the serpent, the woman, the man, and that's the order that God goes through it, the chronological order of the sin is how he curses them in chapter 3. As he does so, he immediately, immediately in the midst of cursing, declares his plan. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But, I'm sorry, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There is one who is coming who is a strange seed, her seed is the most odd statement there is in this chapter, maybe in this book, is that there is a her seed, which there isn't anywhere else recorded, that there is going to come one who will crush Satan's head, and it will not be the seed which is often, which is always every other place referred to the male, but rather to the female. One born of a woman. But this one, born of a woman. Because this word seed is referring to the male part of the creative act, procreation. God inserts this says, no, it's going to be her seed, not his. And we are immediately confronted with something about the coming of our Lord in terms of his birth and his conception that it would be of a virgin. It would be, it would be one without the uh, uh, aid of the male part at all. It would be her seed. But we're also not only given the, the, the concept of, its, of this one who will come, this deliverer, 
in terms of his coming, but also of his purpose. This seed is coming to crush Satan's head. But between that birth, that miraculous birth of one who is born of a woman, her seed, and this conclusion of his purpose in coming, which is the crushing of Satan's head, destroying the power of sin and of evil, that between those two great historical events, there is also this historical event that Satan will bruise his heel. Referring to the attempt on the, to destroy Christ at the cross and certainly the necessity of our Savior's death, burial, and resurrection. That here, at the very beginning of sin, is the very beginning of the disclosure of God's plan. Don't you know, don't you comprehend from the Scriptures that from the very beginning, this is what had to be fulfilled. One had to be born who was the seed of a woman. Weird thing, but that's what it says. One had to come who would suffer the hands of sin and Satan. But that one who came in the seat of a woman and suffered at the hands of sin and Satan would end up being victorious and crushing, destroying both sin and Satan. Wondrous declaration of God in the very beginning of sin. We move a little bit farther along in the chapter 3 of Genesis. We find verse 21 also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And we are confronted again with a simple, direct principle that Adam and Eve understood, Cain and Abel grasped, Noah understood, all men got it from that point on. It was communicated clearly and precisely. It is communicate for us in God's Word, and that is to cover sin. There must be shed blood. Blood must be shed to cover sin. We studied this last week as we looked and considered our worship and we connected it to Hebrews and we looked in Hebrews where it talked about that without the shedding of blood, there is no removal or remission of sin. And we find it early on that one of the things Christ, God is going to communicate to the first couple... Adam and Eve, is that, listen, plant material isn't what's going to cover your sin. I'm going to have to go out and he performs that first act of sacrifice, even as you'll perform the last act of sacrifice, being in his son Jesus Christ, that is by the death of these animals that you'll be clothed. And this sacrifice is required to cover your sin. Now, in that event... It did not cover their sin in a spiritual manner, but only the effects of sin physically. There was a physical death of an animal to cover the physical consequences of their sin. And that would be really the case from then on. It wasn't faith in the blood of an animal, but rather faith in the act of sacrifice, recognizing that there would come one whose sacrifice would be for all men for all time. A sacrifice not made with human hands. That these were looking forward to the one who had come, who had already been prophesied, that would crush Satan's head. We then move to a very powerful picture of Jesus Christ. There are several of them in the book of Genesis. I've only selected a few because my time is so short. I want you to turn to Genesis 22. Not only are we know now that we are looking for one born of a virgin, that we're looking for one who will be suffer cruelly at the hands of sin and Satan, but who will give victory over them. We're looking for a blood sacrifice 
We are looking for a one and only. We are looking for a one and only son. A guy named Abram was called by God out of the land of Ur, had come in and, and had no children and thought he would solve the problem himself and took Hagar, an Egyptian, and had a son, Ishmael. And God says, that's not the one. I've told you that Sarai, your wife, will be with child. They laughed over that, but here is this promised miracle child. And Isaac becomes a wonderful picture of Christ. In your old age, when there is no hope, and just the thought of having kids makes you laugh, and there are a few of you here that if I said you're going to have more kids, you just start laughing at me. We're not any different than Sarai and Abram. And here we have a miracle child coming on the scene in whom God has already declared that this is the child of promise. This is the child that will that will carry your name, that will carry the blessings that I have on you. This is the one that will be raised up into not just one nation, but perhaps many. Well, certainly many. And God comes to Abram. In chapter 22, by now he's renamed him Abraham. That happened in the midst of the events of his promise of Isaac. Verse 22, chapter 22 came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son. Your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we have this introduction of what God intends to do. And Isaac becomes a picture or a type of this plan of God. Abram, I'm going to explain, I'm going to show you, I'm going to portray for you what it's going to take to Redeem man fully. Because the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to the task. And whether, and, and he's already done this. He's already separated them out. And he's had this covenant relationship with God based upon, and, and it was required of him the sacrifices of, of three lambs, three heifers, uh, birds, all kinds of things were laid out there. And, and Abram, Abram was out there and, and, and the sacrifice was done so that he and God could meet. Um, and God here is saying, you know, the blood of animals really isn't enough. It really doesn't wash your sin away. It doesn't separate you from your sin. Hebrews tells us it's a reminder of sin over and over again. And so, Abraham, I want to use a very vivid thing to you. I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. Sound familiar? Sounds just like John chapter 3, verse 16. Something like that, doesn't it? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, His one and only Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. And we have this description. Take your Son and offer Him up on this mountain in Moriah, which today is the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. We don't find Abraham arguing the point. We find him obeying immediately, getting everything ready, gathers his son, splits the wood, and heads on out. Has a knife with him. He's prepared. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. A powerful prophetic word by Abraham. God will provide for himself a lamb. And I would contend that that word lamb probably should be capitalized. 
If not, it should at least have the opportunity to be capitalized. Because the one that God will provide for himself is Jesus Christ, his only son. God will provide a lamb for himself. It is not by the working and effort and energy of, of, of mankind that we're going to lift ourselves out of the doldrums and, and wickedness and muck and mire of sin, but rather God Himself is going to have to take it upon Himself to provide a sacrifice for our sins. Abraham is a prophet here proclaiming this. The son, okay, Dad knows he's talking about. Isn't that great? They come to the place God told him. Abraham builds the altar, puts the wood. He binds up Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar. And by the way, this is not a young man. Abraham was pretty ancient by now. I think Isaac could have outrun him. Just judging between me and my kid. Might have outrassled him. Isaac willingly surrendered to his father. And again, we have this picture of Christ surrendering himself to the will of the Father and we have that recorded for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done, Dad. I'd rather not this happen to me, but your will be done. Abraham lifts his hand, takes a knife to slay his son and the angel of the Lord intervenes. And says, oh, you've shown me your faith. And you've made a prophetic statement. And I'm going to fulfill that statement. And there's a ram in the thicket there. A representation of the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And the place is called, the Lord will provide. And that place is the Temple Mount in Israel today. Where our Lord was crucified right nearby. A stone's throw away. The Lord will provide for Himself a Lamb. So we are celebrating the coming of the Lamb of God that the Lord provided for Himself. That there was nothing among men that could generate that kind of a sacrifice. And so it was necessary that Christ, that God send His Son, Jesus Christ, the one that He loved, His only begotten Son, that He might be sacrificed. But go on, we're not done yet. Press on to verse 18. God has a great response. Now let's back up. Let's read a little bit of this response. Verse 16. By Myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your Son, your only Son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. That's all for Israel, but we're not done. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Who is this that is going to be out of the line of Abraham, that out of Israel, out of this line of of Abraham, the the, the man of covenant, promise of God, There's going to be one out of the line of Israel by whom all nations will be blessed. There is one to come. Turn with me to chapter 28 of Genesis. I have to move very quickly. Time is scooting. 28. We have Isaac's kid. Jacob, the second born, first guy, first, second born, something like that. And this is what God has to say to him, verse 13 of Genesis 28. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
from Abraham now, we have isolated it down not to the nations of Ishmael, not to the nations of Esau, but to one nation, the nation of Israel. That is Jacob's other name, by the way. That now, out of Jacob, out of Israel, this nation will come one who will be a blessing to all people of all nations. This is the one that we are anticipating. And so what does he have to say, this guy Jacob, at the end of his life? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. He's going to isolate it even further for us. In Genesis 49, this is Jacob's last words to his sons. He's got them gathered together there. He's going to, he's going to go over each one of them and share a blessing um, and talk about each one. And we come down to verse 9 to Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, that is to Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's coal to the choicest vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And we have this reference to Judah, but we find this promise that out of Judah will come a lion who is king. But he's also the deliverer. And out of this one, Judah, comes Shiloh, the one of peace. The prince of peace is to come out of the tribe of Judah. And through him, all the nations are to be blessed. I share with you that Isaac became a great picture of Christ. I think Noah is a great picture of Christ as well. And the whole chronology around the flood, that there was one man that was righteous in the sight of God, and that he could become the deliverer for all mankind that would follow him, which boiled down to his own family. But there's another character in Scripture that is a powerful presentation of Christ, in addition to Isaac, that I want to talk about, and that is Joseph. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this account of Joseph, but we find that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, the one that Jacob intended to give all the blessing to. The coat of many colors was proof of that. Even though it was Judah through whom the Messiah would come. And so God has some work to do in Jacob's life still. And in the midst of that, he also has a plan. God had a plan to deliver his people from death. Sound familiar? And that plan involved one of the sons of Jacob, the favorite son, the, at the time, only one born of his favorite wife, the one he really fell in love with, not his Leah, the one he got tricked into, and not the two handmaidens, but the one wife, his only son of her at that point, and, and child of blessing, who is going to be taken by his own. And as far as Jacob's knowledge was slaughtered by them. Thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. And Jacob makes a powerful statement in Genesis that my son who once was dead is now alive. This one was sent to this kind of death in Egypt and went down to the lowest portions, not only into slavery in a rich man's house, but ultimately into prison itself. And yet God raised him up to be second only to Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. A wonderful picture of the one Son of God who would die and go into the lowest portions of the earth and yet be raised up to a place of victory and of rulership 
Why? Why all this account of Joseph as this young man? And Joseph himself declares it in chapter 45. He says, but now do not... Verse 5, 45 verse 5, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Two years of the famine have gone, there's five to come, and I have been sent here ahead to save your lives. And just as Joseph was sent by God to endure all that he had to endure, in Jacob's mind, death itself, this symbolic death of Joseph for the deliverance of life, not only Israel's life, by the way, but for all of Egypt, and the Bible says all the world was fed by Joseph's act ruling and reigning in Egypt. We have a powerful description of this one to come who will be an only son who is sent ahead to preserve life, will experience death, and yet will be risen up by the power of God to be victorious over sin and death that he might give life. And John describes that life as the light of men. This is what, when we put up lights, we are declaring, look at the light. It is not little sparkly things. It is rather a person, Jesus Christ, that we are trying to declare and symbolically present, even as Joseph symbolically presents Christ, even as Isaac symbolically presents Christ. We symbolically represent Christ to people and say, look to Christ. The light that has come to deliver men from their sin. This is Genesis, the first book of Moses. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. I did say we're going to go through all of Moses, so you might be here till 2, but we'll get through it. You're really worried now. I'm going to go faster now. In Exodus chapter 4, we have another wonderful presentation of one like unto Christ the Messiah. And that is a man named Moses. And and in chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 22, we have this wonderful statement by our Lord. It says to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, referring to God, let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. We have implementation way back in Genesis of this act of circumcision, the necessity of the shedding of blood to identify one with the people of God. And Zipporah is holding that back and God says, Listen, Israel's my firstborn and all firstborn belong to me. Why doesn't your firstborn belong to me, Moses? Why do the firstborns all belong to God? And that's what the law is going to declare here later on in Exodus and in Leviticus and and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You're going to find the firstborn belong. Every firstborn male belongs to God. Why? As a picture of this one only begotten, Jesus Christ, who will shed his blood to cover our sins. Because he loved us, he would send his son, his only son. Well, Moses becomes a very powerful picture of the deliverance through the powerful uh, destruction of the gods of Egypt and of the will of Pharaoh. But I want to take you to Exodus chapter 12 to see a wonderful, powerful picture of Christ coming. And this is the account of the first Passover where we have this this picture that Israel was to rehearse annually, every year, take time aside for your with your family for a full week, and you are to celebrate and rehearse together my deliverance. Not only the deliverance of, of the nation of Israel out of Egypt, but the fact that it points to a lamb who will deliver all men from their sin. And we have that description instituted here of how they would do it. That it would be a holy convocation. It will be a holiday. That's right. It's a holiday. There it is, right in your Bible. 
Exodus. These are holy days. Holy days set aside to the Lord. A holy convocation. A holy gathering together to remind yourself of this one season of deliverance, but that you did not die. Your firstborn did not die because of a lamb and the blood that was applied to the doorpost and lintel of your home. You rehearse this every year. To remind yourself it is by the shedding of blood that you are delivered from death. We have a powerful reminder that just as this lamb was to have no spot, no blemish, just as the bread that you were to eat that night is the bread of haste, the bread of unleavened, the bread of uh, without sin, that we are to consider and worship the Lord. I want to take you all the way to verse 27 there in chapter 12. It says, Then you shall say, when, uh, the, verse 26, Then it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this? Then you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. We have this powerful representation that when death strikes others, that there can be deliverance if you apply the blood to your life. We have another picture of Christ given to us in the same portion of Scripture. Turn with me to chapter 26 of Exodus. And all through Leviticus particularly, but all through the giving of the law, we find the necessity of the shedding of blood. But recognizing that it had to be done day in and day out, morning and night, every day it had to be done. Over and over and over again, every sin had to be atoned for with a sacrifice because no sacrifice was enough. So every Saturday, sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. And that blood gave them access to God on some level. But the proof that none of those sacrifices was enough was a great veil. And here in Exodus 26, verse 33. This is a instructions to Moses regarding the tabernacle. You shall hang the veil from the class. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. They'll set the table outside the veil. The veil becomes a powerful picture of the law that stands between us and God. That we cannot ever penetrate it. That we cannot come to the mercy seat. We cannot come to the place of His glory. We cannot come to this place of this, this holy of holy place because the blood of bulls and goats isn't enough. It gets you so far but it really isn't enough. And the veil is proof positive to all of Israel. Listen, God is there, but you don't have that kind of access to Him because the blood of bulls and goats isn't sufficient all the way back to Abraham, to Noah, to, to Abel. It was by faith that we come to God. Faith in what? No, faith in who? In that one who would be born of the seed of a woman, who would crush Satan's head, who himself would endure Harm and injury by the hand of sin and Satan. Sinners and Satan. The one, the only Son of God, the one who God Himself would provide, He is the one who will give us that kind of access. And until that day, the veil stands and His glory is hidden. Until one comes to reveal His glory. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we read a portion of it. We read verse 1 through 18. I want to again, beginning 
in verse 17. I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John recognized he was dealing with God incarnate. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God any time. The only begotten, do you get it there? The Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. What has He declared? Verse 14, back up. What is it that Christ declared to us? The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that was hidden from Israel, that was hidden behind the veil, and Christ comes and says, I am going to declare the glory now. And now we have access to the glory of God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This glory is picked up for us again in Exodus chapter 29. And with this we'll close. Although I'd love to take you to Leviticus too. Exodus 29, verse 42. better back up to explain the background. This is regarding the daily offerings of the temple. Every day. A lamb in the morning and a lamb at night. Every day, even if nobody sinned. Verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. For I will meet you to speak with you. There... I will meet with you, the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by the blood of those animals? No. It will be sanctified, set apart, made holy by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his priest and minister of the Lord. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And what is it that finally, ultimately consecrated all of this, set it apart? And yes, they sprinkled blood on everything. Absolutely, they sprinkled blood of the sacrifices on everything to consecrate it from man's perspective. But God says, that's really not what's going to set it aside. What's going to set it aside is my glory. And I will purify all of this the blood is simply a picture of one who come, who is my glory revealed, Jesus Christ. And that is what will set us apart. What is going to consecrate, set apart your worship of Jesus Christ this season? It's not going to be from running home and purging your house of anything that has any kind of pagan origins. What is going to consecrate your worship of Jesus Christ today is by bringing the truth of God's Word into all that is around you, all that you are doing, all that you are saying, that you are pointing over and over again in your mind, in your heart, with your mouth, with your actions to Christ, the glory of the Father revealed to us. Oh, that we will consecrate our worship this season, set it apart to God by focusing on His glory. We sing a song, Angels from the Realms of Glory. It's not their glory. It is a reflected glory, the glory of God. I wanted to talk about Moses and the reflected glory that he had and really emphasize this, the whole aspect of the glory that led Israel out and that, and that brought them in. But that glory was not in the sacrifice of animals, but rather in a person, Jesus Christ. And it's that person that we focused in on. Not the accoutrements around us. That's not our worship. Our worship is the one person, the glory of the Father, Jesus Christ. That glory revealed to us. And brethren, if God can use some pretty strange people and things to draw men's attention to the glory of His Son. 
I'm okay with you using implements to draw your attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. And if that's a gift, a light, a tree, a manger, so be it. But make sure that we aren't worshiping the accoutrements. Make sure that we're worshiping the glory they point to. All of these men of faith did not serve the images, the actions, or the people. They served what they pointed to. They didn't worship the, the Isaac, but rather who Isaac pointed to. We're not going to worship Joseph, but who Joseph points us to, who he reminds us of. Oh, that we would be filled with the worship of the glory of God this season. The law of Moses comprehend it. The works of Moses point to Christ. Again and again and again. We didn't get into the tabernacle, the temple, all the sacrificial system of Leviticus, the priesthood. It goes on and on. All points to there is one coming, born of a virgin, who is God himself, who will be a sacrifice for the sins of men. Is it right for us to celebrate his coming? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I pray that we do so. Not as the world who does so in ignorance and despair, but that we might do it with significance and a sure hope, knowing who it is who has come and why he has come and what it is he accomplished in his coming.